Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Amen. You guys can have a seat. That's the first time I said that in six months. You guys can have a seat. That felt good. We sang that first song, What Can Stop the Lord Almighty. You know what can't stop the Lord Almighty? This is a layup. COVID. COVID cannot stop the Lord Almighty. Uh, And a few technical difficulties cannot stop the Lord Almighty. And I don't say this lightly, but we've had enough technical difficulties at weird times over the years to say Satan working through the technical difficulties cannot stop the Lord Almighty. So... Um, we're, we're glad that we're here and you're here wherever you are. And as, as Jake said, that this is not church. You are the church. And we've learned that more in COVID than, than probably at most times. Some people work their, their tail off like throughout this past six or seven months, but specifically for this morning. So Jake and Julie and um, John Enzor and John Pritchett that, like did, and we, we did have some technical stuff. You remember the scene from Apollo 13 where they're trying to figure out how many amps they can get with various things before they don't have enough power? You remember that scene? That was on the stage this morning when we're trying to figure out what do we need to do to make the thing not flip. Um, we went, Daniel Floyd has just put in a ton of work figuring out what we do with the live stream and how we get it all together and Tiffany has it well and Kelly getting these busy bags ready and and just everything so I'm really thankful for those folks um, an announcement or two before before I get going into my message we are going to have a birthday and business meeting it's going to be I forget what the date is. is it the 25th it's the 24th or the 25th I just don't know which date that is it's going to be a Sunday night we're going to do it oh it's on the screen there it is um uh, we're going to do it outside like we did the outdoor service. Um, it's going to be like a bring your own meal with nothing to share. Uh, and, and we may have like cupcakes as our birthday cake. And so we'll work all that out. But a time for us to, um, to gather as a church family to pray, um, to share what God's been doing through COVID and to talk about uh, just some plans that we have for the future. So we'd love for you to sign up for that. And also we have the, the camping trip that we've done for elementary kids in the past. We have about five families with elementary kids that want to do that. We, we just had to push that a little bit late, but we're just going to open up to whoever wants to go camping. It's going to be a church camp out. I think we're doing it at Falls Lake. And we have a group site. And so we would love for you to, um, to sign up for that. All right. We're in week five, I think, of a series called um, Peter and Every Man's Guide to Spiritual Formation. And it's really meant to look at some scenes in the life of Peter um, and just look at what, it's not a a perfect framework, but a pretty good framework of what what it looks like to live out the life of faith and what stages you go through and, you know, that you might go through and go back through and blend in, but just what to expect. And um, this week, we're in stage four, which is called the inward journey. And this is kind of the deep end of the pool. And so I'd say this, if you're new to walking with Christ or just thinking about walking with Christ, but you're not quite there yet and you're here this week, don't let it scare you off. Just kind of file it in the back of your head as when that happens, remember that this thing happened. When I was, um, before I got, before I'd even met my wife, I was hanging out with some, at a, like a men's study at our church, and all these guys were married, and I'll never forget this conversation. It was a Shoney's off of Buck Jones Road that hasn't been there for years, and they were talking about how seasons of marriage and how it's not bad when you're in a season when, like, she likes you, but you don't really like her right then, and it's not bad when you're in a season when you like her, but she doesn't like, really like you for a little while. It's bad when you go through one of those seasons when neither one of you likes each other, and I was like, what's wrong with you guys? 
like you might need a counselor here, you know. Um, but now I've been married for 21 years and I get that, you know. And so this is that type of thing where you just want to file that away. Um, and so I'll start by asking if you've ever gotten a place in your, to a place in your life where you thought everything uh, you thought you knew was true was maybe not, maybe not, maybe it wasn't what you thought it was, or a person that you really depended on and believed in and led you and shaped you, uh, let you down, or maybe even betrayed you, if you've ever been to a place in your life, because that's a bit what stage four feels like. I had a, a sociology class in college, and so I've talked a bit about my phases and like going through them, but then maybe going back through them, and and in high school, I professed faith in Jesus, and then I, I mean, I got discipled, and I led Bible studies and did some productive stuff, and then I got to college, and I took a sociology class, and the guy said, hey, everything that you believe, you believe because you were socialized to believe it, um, shaped to believe it, because that's what sociology professors say, you know? Now, what he didn't say, and he could have said, because he went to church, he could have said, that doesn't mean what you believe isn't true, it just means you should probably look at why you believe the things that you believe. I kind of took that like, oh, wait a second, like it disillusioned me along with several other things in college, and it, it sent me in a little bit of a tailspin in my faith, and I went through something that's probably like this. Um, I was thinking about people, and there was a guy in the church that I went to in high school that was um, formative for a lot of people. I think he's the guy that really led my dad to faith in Jesus, and they were co-workers, and this guy was a little bit older, been married 25, 30 years, just a rock, you know, for the church and for his family and all this stuff. Well, a few years after I left, it, you know, it came out that he had cheated on his wife and he, he had left and then he married this other woman and then he converted to Catholicism, which is, you know, a whole other story. But, but it just disillusioned a lot of people in that church. His son-in-law, um, I believe he led his son-in-law to Jesus, but he was a mentor for his son-in-law. And so his son-in-law was a little bit lost. I don't know if you've ever had that happen where just a person that you believed in, like, and you just don't know, it's like you've lost footing, you know? There's a guy right now um, who, he passed a few months ago, a Christian apologist leader named Ravi Zacharias, who, man, I've listened to a ton of his, I've quoted him, you've, I've told you to listen to him. Well, it turns out um, he had some sexual sin that was covered for years and is now coming out afterwards. And so you start thinking, like, well, if, can this be true if that's true? Like these two things don't make sense together. And so what am I supposed to think about this now that that is there? And that's a bit of what happens in stage four. Like things happen and it's not going to be about Jesus. You're not going to find out something that's going to make you think less of Jesus, you know, but it may make you think there, you find out things about yourself. Certainly they're going to make you think less of yourself when you thought you were farther along than you were or the people around you, but you just get to a place, um, where you're, you're asking questions that you don't feel like you should ask at that point. It's hard at a time when it seems like things should be getting easier. I've used an analogy uh, throughout the series about a marathon. Like it's like if you're, if you're running a marathon, it helps to know what the course is like so you know what to expect at different places. And I had forgotten about this. Justin reminded me of it when we were talking a few weeks ago. But so I ran a marathon a few years ago at about 45. I also ran one at 25. So at 65, I'm going to be ready to walk a marathon maybe. Um, but at 25, my dad coached me for that one, and he had run several marathons. And so he said, hey, when you get to mile 20, just don't be surprised when it seems like everyone on the course starts walking. He said, you get to mile 20 in a marathon, and you hit the wall. And whether that's psychological or physiological, he just said everyone's going to start walking. And when everyone starts walking, guess what you're going to want to do? 
you're going to want to start walking. He said, but you can get through that. And by about mile 22, somehow you feel better. And if you keep running, then you're going to get some energy about mile 22, and you'll be able to finish out the race. And so it really, it, it really helps. And in this book that I've referenced a few times, they reference the wall. It helps when you're going through the wall to know there's something past the wall so that when you're going through it, you can just keep putting one foot in front of the other <laughs> and not stop, but keep moving forward. And, and that's a bit of what this is. Um, it's about just this race, what to expect, uh, and what to do when things get, get really, really difficult. So today we're going to look at Peter really run into the wall. Um, and the scene I'm going to start with comes right after the conversation he has with, Jesus has with the rich young ruler. So the rich young ruler is a rich young ruler, leader in Israel. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, um, and they have a conversation about the law, and the, the young guy's like, well, good, I've done all those things. Like, I should be good to go. And Jesus is like, yeah, you should be good to go. Now, one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. <laughs> and the guy walks away sad because he has lots of stuff. Now, Peter's watching this scene unfold. And in our stages, the rich young ruler is at stage one, right? The recognition of God. We've talked through these things. Stage two is the productive life. Stage three is... Um, or stage three is the productive life. Stage two is the life of discipleship. And so this guy's at stage one. He's trying to figure out if, if Jesus matters in his everyday life, if he's worth losing his life so that Jesus can save his life and whether he'll surrender um, all those things. And, and he ends up not doing it at that moment, you know, because he's got a lot of stuff. And Jesus has said, listen, you're probably following the rules because you're a rule follower and that makes you feel good. I want your life, and your life is in your stuff and your accomplishments, so you give me your stuff, and then follow me, and then, like, that's what this is, and the young guy walks away sad because he's got lots of stuff, and then they have this conversation about um, the disciples are like, well, that's hard, you know, and Jesus said, uh, you know, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven, and with God, all things are possible, and then Peter asks this question. Peter says, See, we've left everything and follow you. How much then, or what then will we have? We've left everything to follow you. What are we going to have? And that is, in the scene, like a little bit of an out-of-left-field question. And it is a, um, that's a stage four question. Uh, I feel like that's a, it's a question we all ask at different times, but it's, it's stage four, it's a question that you you ask at a deep level and you can't avoid, does this stuff really work? Does this stuff really work? Um, you don't follow Jesus because he works. You follow Jesus because he's true. But if he's true, you expect that it's all going to work, and that's a fair expectation. This does it work question is a question I think we all ask at some level all the time. Um, a lot of times, it's like either you can just put it in the background because it's not going to affect what's going on right then, or you don't want to admit that you're asking it. But I was reading this week someone that suggested the opposite of, of faith isn't doubt, and I think that's true. Like, I think the life of faith allows for some uncertainty, or you wouldn't need faith. You'd have proof. And so it's not doubt. It might be certainty, or it might be self-assurance, or whatever it is. And so uncertainty isn't really the problem. Uh, but at level four, the question gets really loud in your head. And I'll point out that Peter knows it works. 
if anybody does. Peter's seen miracle after miracle after miracle following Jesus for a few years. Peter's heard all the teachings of Jesus maybe a couple times. He's seen people have their lives changed because of Jesus. He's gone out on missionary journeys that, that Jesus has sent him out on, and he's seen God use him to affect change in the lives of the people around him. He knows it works. Uh, when you get to stage three, you know it works, and you know that God works through you, and it's incredibly satisfying to know that that's it. But that's part of why stage four gets so hard, because you think, I should not be thinking this. <laughs> like, it does not make sense to be here right now. You don't want to tell people what you're thinking and where you are, because, you know, you don't even want to admit to yourself that you're dealing with these questions. You're scared of where the questions go. You've got a lot invested in stage one, two, and three, and so if in stage four you ask these questions and come up with the wrong answer, it's like, well, what does that mean? But that's what he's asking, like, hey, we've lost our lives for you. Are you going to save them? It's kind of like, is this all there is question? Uh, and it's not an unfair question. Uh, John Piper uses this term Christian hedonism, and I don't know if he coined it or he got it from someone else, but he says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that should be true. We should be satisfied and joyful in the Lord. And, and much of the time, you're going to be satisfied and joyful in the Lord, but not all of the time. That's similar to marriage, where if you come into marriage thinking, we're well, going to be happy as clams every single day, you might run into a little bit of a problem with that, you know? Like, you should be happy much of the time, but if happiness is the purpose of your marriage, then you're not going to be happy with that. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And it's the same thing with following Jesus. I used this quote a few weeks ago from Jen Wilkin that, about just the nature of sin, that we were made to reflect God to the people around us, but instead we've decided to rival God. Like we're made to surrender and let him do his will through us for the people around us, but instead we seek control of him and all our circumstances um, and have a hard time admitting, A, that we don't have control, and B, that we wouldn't do well with it if we did have it. Uh, and following Jesus, while it's the best decision that you're ever going to make with your life, it is the best decision you'll ever make with your life. There'll be days where it's going to feel like it's the worst decision. It might be the worst decision that you made. There are going to be times when it's hard. There's a gap between you losing your life and him saving your life. Like he saves you, you know what I mean? But like bringing you to those places of satisfaction. And that's what stage four feels like. And this gets a lot worse for Peter. So a few months later, uh, Jesus goes to the cross. And they get to the Last Supper and Jesus says, Hey, um, you guys are all going to fall away from me tonight. And Peter's like, not me, man. Like, I've had questions about the rest of these guys the whole time. I think you're right about them, but I'll never deny you. I'll die before that happens. You know, stage three, productive, super confident. A few hours later, they're in the garden. The guards come and take Jesus and lead him away. They're bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter follows at a distance. And when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man, who was, with him, this man was with him, but Je Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also, you're one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately as he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And this is one of the toughest scenes in the Bible. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. They're like within earshot. Or like they, they got a sight line, you know. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and whipped, wept bitterly. And part of that is Peter realizing that he'd failed Jesus. But part of that is Peter realizing that he has no idea what's going on at that moment. <laughs> like it makes no sense to him. One author described it this way, Peter had left family, home, and business to follow Jesus. In front of Jesus and all his friends, he came with assurance to confess Jesus to be the expected Messiah. Suddenly, on Good Friday, the answers did not fit. So certain had he and his friends been of who Jesus was and what Jesus was to do in Jerusalem that they could not comprehend those warnings about pending disaster. But the arrest of Jesus placed in jeopardy all of Peter's beliefs about what God was doing in Jesus. Disappointed, confused, and maybe even a little angry, Peter abandoned his friend and then denied any knowledge of Jesus. His tears reflected his brokenness. The Peter who emerged after Easter to lead the church after Pentecost was a different Peter than the man for whom the rooster had crowed. He's going to go through it, and he's going to get beyond it, and he's going to lead the church, but he's going to lead the church as a different guy than he came into that garden as. He's going to rely on the Holy Spirit in a completely different way. And Peter's definitely in a unique circumstance, but others, so many others, you start looking for this and you see the experience. So Elijah, prophet in the Old Testament, and um, his, you know, the people he faced down in, in the big showdown were Ahab and Jezebel, and there's a three-year um, drought, there's no rain, and so they end up with this showdown between Jehovah and the prophets of Baal. Baal was the false god they were worshiping up at the time. And so all these prophets of Baal get up there and Elijah gets up there and they set up these altars and they each get a bull and they sacrifice the bull and put it on the altar and the prophets of Baal go first to see what Baal's going to do with that thing. And so they start chanting or doing whatever they do. It says they cut themselves trying to get Baal's attention so he'll do something to this bull that's on the altar. And Elijah is in, he's in full stage three confidence and so he just starts mocking them. He's like, hey, guys, maybe you need to be a little bit louder. Like, maybe Baal's sleeping up there. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he went on a trip, and he'll be back soon. Maybe he's going to the bathroom, you know? Maybe you just wait a little bit longer, and, and he'll do something, and nothing happens. And, uh, and it, the way that it's written is great. It's like, nothing happened. There was no fire. No one paid attention. Poor prophets of Baal. And then it's Elijah's turn, and again, he's feeling it. So he's like, hey, there's four huge jugs of water. Why don't you dump them over my altar before I call on God? And so they do it, and he's like, let's fill them up again. And he has them do it a third time. There's a moat around the altar. It's all full with water. And so he's like, all right, God, do your thing. Fire. Whole thing burns up. All the water's lapped up. All the people are like, whoa. Uh, they kill the prophets of Baal. They want nothing to do with Baal at that point. Like, this is stage three, right? Um, the, the rain then. He takes his servant up on this hill, and he tells his servant, hey, go up on the other side of the hill and look west. You're going to see the rain. It's coming in. Servant goes up there. He looks around. He can't see anything in the sky. He comes back to Elijah and says, hey, man, I don't see it. Elijah's like, go on up there again. Rain's coming. I know it. We got this. And so he goes up there again, doesn't see anything, comes back down. 
You know, after the first time, I'd probably be like, man, that's not what I thought was going to happen. After the second time, I'd definitely be thinking about that. He sends them up there seven times. Seven is a number of completion in the Old Testament. This is like, I have complete confidence in the Lord. The seventh time, he sees this little cloud on the horizon. It comes in, rain everywhere. This is Elijah. Like, could not be more stage three than this. He gets done with that, and, and it works, but it really doesn't work the way he thought it would work. Jezebel doesn't change her heart one bit. She says, if it is the last thing I do, I am going to have Elijah's head on a platter. And so she has people chase him down. And he goes into the desert, gets in a cave, curls up, and asks to die. It says in that uh, passage, there he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. I did everything you asked me to. Why didn't this work? Oh, I'm yelling too loud. Uh, Why didn't this work? Why didn't this work? And they come, they seek my life to take it away. Do you hear Peter in that? See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? God does this work because this isn't what I thought it was going to look like. I've done all the things. I don't know what else I have to do. Like, are you going to come through, God? I, I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there. Job is a does-it-work story. Most, right, most righteous man in the East, you know? <laughs> uh, can't find a thing that guy's done wrong. Has these kids, you know, has, the whole family's over for Sunday dinners. That, that some of them don't, sac- he sacrifices on their behalf. Um, and everything gets taken away. His friends don't believe in him anymore. That's a God-does-this-work story. Abraham you know, they wait for a kid, don't get it. At 75, God says, okay, you're going to have a kid. 25 years later, they have a kid. 12 years after that, God wants the kid. And I can only imagine that the walk up that hill to sacrifice Isaac was a one foot in front of the other stage four walk of like, I don't think this is what I thought this was going to be. Moses, stage three, going in front of Pharaoh, the ten plagues, part in the Red Sea, gets out into the desert. Before he gets off of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, they're sacrificing to a golden calf. <laughs> and then he gets ticked off about all their whining, and he can't go to, to the promised land. That's got to be, there's got to be some stage four in there. The lament psalms, a third of the psalms are lament psalms. They're kind of God, where are you psalms? Those are stage four psalms. Paul at a place where they despaired of their lives because of how hard things had gotten, but that was so that they would rely more on the God who raises the dead. Those are stage four moments. The Ephesian church in Revelation where Jesus writes to him and says, man, now you're, you're doing all the right things still, like you're checking the boxes, but you've lost your love. You've lost your heart. Those are stage four moments. To get to the stage of productive living, we've learned things like obedience, innocence, belonging and being in the center. They no longer serve us and we slowly and we begin slowly to change our approach to God. We move from a posture of knowing to one of seeking. That's stage four. Um, one last example, and then I'm really I'm almost 
done because I'm going to cut stage four into two, two sermons. But it was um, this book that I've mentioned, They Found the Secret. It's a bunch of Christian leaders. The guy that started the Salvation Army, John Bunyan, Amy Carmichael, um, Charles Finney, uh, Hudson Taylor, they, they, as it's described, I'm like, man, this is stage four. And when these things work together, I thought I'm going I'm to do this series. So one of their guys, though, was Oswald Chambers. And so a lot of people, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard of Oswald Chambers. He wrote maybe the most best-known devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. And, um, and it's fantastic, like Christian hero. And so this is so surprising. So he, he grows up in the faith. He has a chance to go to a business school of some renown, but passes it up. He just wants to dedicate his life to the Lord. So he goes to a lesser-known Bible school, and he ends up teaching at this Bible school, the Noon College, as he says, a tutor in philosophy. And some guy comes and speaks about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and just something that he doesn't think he's experienced. And he says, I was interested in this. He said, but from that day on for four years, nothing but the overruling grace of God and kindness of friends kept me out of an asylum. <laughs> like all of a sudden, stage four. He says, God used me during, during those years for the conversion of souls. So you're still got stage three stuff going on, but you've moved on to this different place. But I had no conscious communion with him. The Bible was the dullest, most uninteresting book in existence, and the sense of depravity, the vileness, and bad motiveness of my nature was terrific. I see now that God was taking me by the light of the Holy Spirit and his word through every ramification of my being. It was hard. He says, I knew that if what I had was all the Christianity there was, the thing was a fraud. Then Luke eleven thirteen got hold of me. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He says, those of you who know the experience know very well how God brings one to the point of utter despair. And I got to the place where I didn't care whether everyone knew how bad I was. I cared for nothing on earth save to get out of my present condition. And he says there was a little meeting held during a, like a mission week at this Danoon College, and a lady took the after meeting, and she sung a hymn, and then she had, had them pray, and he came up to pray. And he was like a leader at this college, you know? So she's like, see, look, if Oswald Chambers is coming up and praying, you guys should come up and pray, and he's a good example for all of you. And he says, I, stu I stood up, and I said, I got up for no one else's sake. I got up for my own sake. And he said, either Christianity is a downright fraud, or I have not got hold of the right end of the stick, which I think is like a British thing, right? It's either a fraud or I have not got hold of the right end of the stick. And then and there, I claim the gift of the Holy Spirit and commitment to Luke 11. He says, I had no vision of heaven or angels. I had nothing. I was as dry and empty as ever. No power or realization of God. No witness of the Holy Spirit. He said, then I was asked to speak at a meeting. And 40 souls came out to the front. He said, I didn't notice any discernible difference, but something had changed. And his preaching was the same, but the power behind his preaching was different. Uh, he said, did I praise God? No, I was terrified and left them to the workers and went to a friend and told him what had happened. He said, don't you remember claiming the Holy Spirit as a gift on the word of Jesus? And he said, you'll receive power. This is the power from on high. Then like a flash, something happened inside of me. And I saw that I had been wanting power in my own hand, so to speak, that I might say, look what I have by putting my all on the altar. Don't miss that. I saw that I had been wanting power in my own hand that I might say, look what I have by putting my all on the altar. Stage three, productive, but still in some ways about me. And I don't know if this is 
this is just a thing that can happen in stage four, right? And it's what happened to him, and I relate to this. God wanted something more, something deeper. He said, if the four previous years had been hell on earth, these five years have been truly heaven on earth. Glory be to God, the last aching abyss of the human heart is filled to overflowing with the love of God. Love is the beginning, love is the middle, and love is the end. After he comes in, all you see is Jesus only, Jesus ever. Stage five in this is the outward journey, and stage six is the life of love. And it sure sounds like what he's talking about. He says, climbing in the spirit is accomplished by kneeling and not by running, by surrender and not by determination. Despair of self leads to utter desperation, but beyond these mists lies the sunshine of God's presence. Many, of us, many a soul will turn back to the accustomed marshlands of defeat rather than brave the fogs of frustration, but the mountain peaks rise high above the rain and gloom. This pattern in the crisis of the deeper life followed by its wide outreach is almost identical with the experience of countless others of God's children. First, there's the hunger of the heart, often followed by a sense of desperation that leads to utter surrender of self. Thereafter, there is the meeting of the soul with God in whatever manner the Almighty is pleased to reveal himself to the desperate seeker who, like Jacob, will not let go until there's a blessing. And to me, that's a description of running that marathon and, and getting hit in the wall and realizing you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And God knows what he's doing. I am, next week, I'm going to talk about what you do at stage four. Um, and so those four are, are know that you're not alone, resist the temptation to go backwards, know that it won't last forever, and recognize the difference between seeking to get things done for Jesus and seeking Jesus. This week, really what I wanted to get to was the first one, know that you're not alone. If you've been there, if you are there, when you get there, know that, know that you're not alone. Uh, the devil uses isolation as much as the devil uses anything. Um, to stunt us in our relationship with the Lord and, and to keep us from moving where God wants us to be. Jesus, in, that, um, in the scene with the rich young ruler, when Peter asked that question, this is Jesus' response. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He says, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to take care of you, Peter. It may not make sense for a while, but I'm going to take care of you. And when he says many who are last will be first and the first will be last, things might not make sense now, but things are going to make sense then. I'm gonna, we're going to finish by taking communion. And so we've got these little communion cups, and you can, you can start with the process of opening these up, as I will too, because it's hard to get that little top off without getting the bottom off and get the little wafer out. Um, but man, I was just thinking this morning, it's really hard to say that Jesus went through stage four, you know, because because um, he's Jesus. And yet, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it sure seems like Jesus can relate to moments of, I don't really want to be here right now. You know, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. 
And so if you feel stage four, if you know stage four, if you're in stage four, know that you're not alone. Know, know that, like, I've been there and part of me is there. Um, know that Oswald Chambers and Hudson Taylor and John Bunyan and Amy Carmichael and all these saints have been there. More people than you know, probably everybody who's really walked with the Lord have been there. And you're not alone. But know that Jesus knows what it's like when you're there. And so that's part of the reason he wants us to do this. And so we take this and, and we do this in remembrance of Jesus. This is his body that's been broken for us. Man, if you can get that little cup open without spilling it all over your computer. Come on, Jeff. Oh, no. There we go. There we go. Um, this is his blood that was shed for us, and so we drink this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you that we get to gather in your name. And Father, man, I'm so, I'm so thankful for um, for all the stories in the Bible where it just didn't make sense to people and that you let them go in the Bible. And I'm thankful for this critical journey book and for this, this stories, this guy that compiled these stories of these folks that went through this time where it didn't make sense, Lord. And I'm thankful for Jesus being in the garden and the anguish of sweating, um, sweating blood. And so for those of us that know this, <laughs> for those that are in this and maybe are just realizing it, God, thank you that you are there with us, that you will not leave us as orphans, that we are not alone, that the Holy Spirit is in us, that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, Lord, and that we can know that you're with us. I pray your grace upon us. Um, I pray for strength to put one foot in front of the other. I pray for glimpses of the way forward. I pray that the way, f I thank you, Lord, that the way forward is better than, than what we've been through even. And what we've been through is pretty good at that, when you get to that point, Lord. But there's more. And you don't want us to settle for less. And so, God, would you carry us through those times? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.